Okay, we're going to start here on the bottom of Yud Chedom and Pet, three lines from the bottom. Ten Rabbanan, Bet Shemai Omrim, Lo Yimkar Adam Chomitzo, Denachri, Elim Kain, Yudea Boshi, Yechle Kodom HaPesach, Divir Bet Shemai. Bet Shemai says you can only sell your Chomitz to Denachri if you're certain that he will finish the Chomitz off for the Pesach. Ubeit Elul Omrim, Kozman, Shmutad Ochlo, Mutad Mochro. They're two independent issues. If you can eat it, you can sell it. Once it's in the possession of Nachri, it's no longer your issue. Once you've sold it, it's out of your possession, it's out of your ownership. It's out of your ownership, then the Nachri can eat it at his own leisure, at his own pace. Yudomer, Kuteach Abavli, Vichomine Kuteach, Asurdim Kor, Lamed Yom Kodom Pesach. Kuteach Abavli and all mine Kuteach, Kuteach are dips. The Kuteach Abavli is a specific type of dip that involved moldy bread and cheese that was fermented a little bit. Was a dip that they used. It has duration to it. Nobody ate it in one shot. It wasn't the type of item that you ate, it's the type of item that you held on to and you used over a period of time. So, here, Rabbi Yehud is suggesting that you have to get rid of the Kuteach Bavli 30 days before Pesach, which is interesting why, Rashi says, Rashi says, the Dine Pesach start to apply from 30 days prior to Pesach. So at that point, you have to start thinking about issues of Pesach. You sell the Kuteach before that point in time, we don't worry about it, even though maybe it'll last through Pesach. But nevertheless, you're not engaged in the Yenei Pesach. 30 days before, when you start talking about the Hilchot Pesach, that is the influence that Pesach has, covers that period of time, including the 30 days prior to Pesach. And therefore the Azhara Pesach comes in at that time, and one has to get rid of all of the items that will take time to be consumed. According to Rabbi Yehuda, you would have to sell it already coming into within 30 days of Pesach. Once you're within 30 days of Pesach, you can no longer sell it because you're in the purview of Pesach. And that purview makes you Chayav in Azharat Pesach and you can no longer sell it. Similar items that we have with the Gardei Bedika. Why don't you have to start thinking about doing a Bedika when you leave the house? How much before Pesach is it relevant? So here, the 30 days also is relevant in that instance. Tarabanan. You give mizonot, you give food to the kelev. Obviously over here we're talking about, talking about the chametz. And so you place it into the front of the dog. The dog walks out with it and left. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Place in front of an Again, if he takes it and leaves, we don't worry about it. Why do I need two memro to tell me the same thing? One by the Kelev, one by the Nachri. Basically, it says that if you give them food to eat, and then they choose to do what they want with it, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Mar says, They're the same din, twice. It's the difference between a kelev, which you're obligated to feed, versus the nachri, which you are not obligated to feed. So I would think that maybe there's a difference there between those two. Kamash Malan, that there is no difference. By the kelev, where you have to give him food, you have to provide him with the food. So maybe over there, we say, fine, if he takes the food out, and that's it, you're done with it. By the nachri, you have no obligation to give him food. So maybe you can't give him that food. Maybe you can't engage him to do things that we wouldn't necessarily like. But if he places the Mizanot of Kelev, who he's obligated to feed. So maybe since he's obligated to feed the Kelev, he has no choice. He has to give him the food. The Kelev walks out. Afterwards, he's not going to control the Kelev. The Nachri, who he's not obligated to give food to, maybe he shouldn't give food because we know the Nachri is going to move that food from a Rishuta Yachid to a Rishuta Rabim.
So maybe you should desist from that type of activity. Kamash Malan, that you're allowed to give it to him. You don't have to worry about what the other does with the food. If you give food to that individual, you're done. That's the end of your job. Once you've given them the food, whether you're obligated or not obligated is irrelevant. Once you've given them the food, if they choose to take it, we should take to do something for their own benefit, you don't have to worry about that anymore. What's interesting here is the Tosafot. Tosafot says, Bedavka Mizonot. The only thing you're allowed to give to the Nakhri is food. Any other item you cannot. Even according to Beit Because Beit was only matir on Erev Shabbat. To give something to a Nakhri right before Shabbat. But on Shabbat itself, he doesn't think that you can give something to a Nakhri to walk out of your house with. That you can't do. How could you give mizonot to Nakhri on Shabbat? You're not obligated to feed them. That we know in Beitzah, the Gemara says that the difference between, in terms of Tirchad Shabbat and cooking on Yom Tov is if you're obligated to take care of that individual, you can cook on Yom Tov for them. If you're not obligated to take care of that individual, you don't can't cook for them. Also, in terms of animals, you can feed animals that you are obligated to provide for. You do not, or you cannot feed animals that you do not have an obligation to feed. You can't do Tircha de Shabbat. You can't do Tircha on Shabbat to provide mizonot for animals that you're not obligated to provide for. So how come over here you're allowed to provide mizonot for the Nachri? Answer to Tosvot is amazing. Because we do provide stakah both to Jewish and non-Jewish poor because of Darchei Shalom. It's a little bit like you're obligated to provide for him because of that principle. Since tircha, extra tircha on Shabbat is a din de Rabbanan, the Rabbanan waived it in this instance when it came to food for Anachri. Even though here you're not in the purest sense, obligated to feed him, but there are manifestations where you would be obligated to feed him. For instance, if he showed up, he was an Ani, and he showed up with an Ani Yisrael, you would provide for both of them, because of Darche Shalom. So therefore, he allowed it. It's an amazing Tosafot. Even more amazing is the Tosafot Yishanim here, quotes the Neor Zeruah. There was a Nachri that fell ill. Shalach Yudi, Achad B'yom Tov, Shishlach Lo Fell ill, and it was the first day of Yontif, and he said to him, listen, I need some wine. Bim lo yishlach lo yamut. If he doesn't send him the wine, he's going to pass away. And this nachri was a big giver in the city. He didn't know what to do. Because in Yom Tov, again, the heter ochel nefesh only applies to Jews. There's no heter ochel nefesh for non-Jews. You cannot cook on Yom Tov on behalf of non-Jewish guests. It's a problem if you have non-Jews at the table in the Yom Tov. It could be problematic in terms of preparing food. You're not allowed to do malacha on Yom Tov on their behalf. Maybe over here, I'm not sure what the issue was, but it could be either that carrying on Yom Tov, which is also part of the quote-unquote heterim of Yom Tov, might be either there's a tosafot in Beitzah that says it has to be letzorech, some sort of tzorech, and it can't be purely for no reason at all, or it could be that their heter of nefesh, again, application to carrying is only when it deals with Jews, not for non-Jews. So to send this wine out into the Rishut Rabim would be problematic because you're sending it to him. He said to him, do it through a, a Nachri. Basically, an Amir Lahakum, to an Akum to an Akum. That way you're down to a Dindirabonon. 
you're down to a dinder abanam, if Darche Shalom will allow you to do it. So that was the suggestion of the Orzarua. So then he says at the end there, Nira, Shimutali Shlochlo Ayadina, Khridli Didan, the late line Hashkash Rishutur Abim Doraita. Tosavot Yishanim adds that today, since we have no real Rishutur Abims anymore, so now you're not even dealing with Hotza'ah Midoraita anymore. You're only dealing with Hotza'ah Midorabanan. Once you drop down to Hotza'ah Midorabanan and you do Amir Lakum, it's what's called Shvut Shvut. You have a double derabanan, but makamatzorech. We're going to allow you to do that mipnei darchei shalom. It was a very interesting question that the or Zerua dealt with in this instance. All right, tarabanan lo yaskir adam kelav lenachri be'erev shabbat. Person may not rent out his property to an achri on erev shabbat. Bedalav beheg mutar on Wednesday and Thursday it's mutar. So Tosfot clears right away that it can't be because of shvitat kelim. If it was Shvita Kedim and Beit Shemai, it would be irrelevant whether it was Erev Shabbat, Thursday, Friday. It doesn't matter when you do it. Because Shvita Kedim applies on Shabbat. If he has your Kedim on Shabbat and there's an obligation on Shvita Kedim, then it wouldn't, wouldn't matter what day you send it. So that clearly can't be the problem. But it must be that we're talking about here, according to Beit Hillel, where there is no Shvita Kedim. If there's no Shvita Kedim, what is exactly the problem? So Rashi says the problem is, It sounds like he is renting it to him for the usage or utilization on Shabbat, meaning that he's doing something for him. He's doing something on his behest or behalf on Shabbat. Tosafot, on the other hand, says, It looks like you're taking profits from working on Shabbat. And he says, even though it's Balua, even though he lent it out to him for a Chodesh or Shavua for a week or a month, because he started it on Erev Shabbat, that's the problem. As long as you move it away from Shabbat, if you do Balua, what's called, you rent something out for a month, for a week. You don't have to worry about that there's a Shabbat in there because he's renting it on a weekly basis, renting it on a monthly basis, we don't get to worry about Shabbat. That's not Shachar Shabbat. It's called Balua, it's fine. But over here where you're renting specifically on the Erev Shabbat, then you know that the first day of the rental is going to be on Shabbat, and there we worry about it looking like Shachar Shabbat. So Tosavot says it's a mechzeh keskar Shabbat. Rashi seems to indicate that it looks like you are renting it for a particular need on this Shabbat, and that he's doing something on your behest or something on your behalf. So therefore, on Friday, on Erev Shabbat, it's problematic. Wednesday, Thursday, that's fine. One may not send letters. They not Jew on Erev Shabbat. On Wednesday and Thursday, that's fine. He never sent anything that he wrote with a Nakhri anytime, ever. Now this issue of mail on Shabbat is significant, and here the Gemara is going to address it, and we'll come back and talk about it in more detail. One may not send a letter with a Nakhri on Erev Shabbat unless he has a fixed Price with him. Chami Morim Kadesha Gila Beito. He has to reach his house. Telomim Kadesha Gila Baita Samochlochoma. He has to reach the house by the wall. Where it says, Balo Katsats. Tim, you just say that he fixed the price with him. If he fixed the price with him, it's Mutar. Why all of a sudden are you giving me these qualifications that it has to reach this point, that point? So Gemara rereads the Baita to say this. Amrav Sheshit Hachi Gamar. Im Lo Katsats. If he didn't fix the price, the Bechayim Rim actually Gila Beito. Then until he reaches his house. Until he reaches the house near the wall. Did you say in the first place you can't send it? So how come all of a sudden you have a qualification? It says, 
So it depends on whether there is a fixed Beidoar in the place, or there's no fixed Beidoar in the place. Obviously today, the modern day, Beidoar means a post office. Over here in the Gemara, it's a Machloket Rishonim, what exactly this means. Rashi says that it's in the recipient city. The individual that you're taking it to is somebody who is a prominent figure in the city. And therefore, when the Nachri reaches there, he knows he can go to his house, drop it off, and there won't be any problem. And you can see Rashi actually has the Girsa Nagmar be Shricha Bemato and not Kviya Bemato, that he's commonly found in the city, not Kviya Bemato, that it's fixed in the city. What we're worried about here, at least according to Rashi, is that the non-Jew who's performing this service on your behalf, that he'll continue to work on your behalf into Shabbos. What's the problem? The problem is that if he gets to the city and he's supposed to deliver the mail for you, then he gets there and the person's not available. So now he's going to have to start looking around for him. He's going to have to find him. He's going to have to go to another place for you. So if that's the case, then he's working on your behalf on Shabbat because... He now is into Shabbat. He thought he was going to be able to deliver it in that city, but he's not there, and he has to move on. So Beidoar means that there's an essential location. According to Rashi, it's a big, big name in the city. He's always going to be there. You know where to drop it off. Others indicate that it was a governmental official that was designated in the city where you could drop it off, equivalent of a post office, but you could drop it off at that individual, and then he would distribute it to the others in the city. That is indicating that the issue is in the recipient city. And that's why Beit Shemai says until he gets to his house, meaning that the destination, or Beit Yilal says the Bayit HaSemuch is in the destination city. There are others, I think like the Rambam, who read, that we're talking about in the city that you're sending it from, there's a central location. In that city, you give it over to the central location, and then there is some sort of postal delivery or designated delivery system that works. The Ramam says it's actually a post office or governmental office in the city of the sender, and that there's some sort of official postal system to which the letter is given over to, and therefore the descriptions of Beit Shemai and Beit Hillel are about the city of the sender. It has to reach the wall of the city, meaning it has to be in the position where it's going with the mail system, or does it have to just leave his house of the sender? And the Rabbeinu Kanano says it's actually the postman, which is the word Beidovar in Persian. The word has been co-opted to mean a postman or a mailman. And that's what the Rabbeinu Kanano translates it as, as a mailman. But all these latter explanations are saying that there's some sort of governmental office system or person designated to deal with the mail. So what comes out of this Gemara are two principles. The first principle is the one that we mentioned yesterday, the difference between a contractor and a laborer, or a skirion. If someone is a contractor, you do not have to worry about the fact that they do malach on Shabbat, because that's their choice. How they, and when they deliver it, is a matter of their own convenience. So if you give them money, and it's a fixed price, that's what the Gemara is saying here, if you fix the price up front, then the transaction's done immediately, which is that he has the money, he's got to deliver the letter. How and when he delivers the letter, that's his job. Unless you specify that he has to deliver it on Shabbat, then obviously that's problematic because you're not giving him the requisite amount of time to do it. So if it's up front, a fixed price, that's what's called a contractor. A contractor is not a problem. The second principle is laid out in this Gemara is what's called akum akum, which is that if you have a miral akum and then that akum is going to pass it to another akum, in that case we're more lenient. So instance this case, if you give it to him and then he's going to deliver it himself, and when he gets to the delivery city, the person's not there, he's going to work for you into Shabbat. We say, no good. 
But if he gets to the recipient city and he puts it into the post office or into that central location, and then that Nachri takes care of it, that's called a, it's a double derivative. It's not you speaking to the Nachri. You told the Nachri to do something, but he can be finished before Shabbat. He passes it to another Nachri who's going to work on Shabbat. That's already distanced enough from you, so it's not a problem. So in the modern mail system, for instance in Chutz Laaretz, where if you deposit it even on a Friday into a mailbox, it's first of all a contractual contractor obligation. You pay a fixed price for the delivery of the letter, no matter when the letter gets there. And there's no obligation for the letter to be there on Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Whenever they deliver the letter, that's what you pay for. Unless you specify or you buy delivery on Shabbat, then you're going to have a problem. If you specify that it has to be delivery for Shabbat, now you've entered into a separate issue, which is now you're asking them specifically to do it for you on Shabbat. So now, if they don't have sufficient time to do it before Shabbat, you're going to have an issue with that. Okay, so very good. Excellent, excellent. So what David is pointing out is that there you have the, maybe the secondary head, which is that in terms of contractor versus Kiryom, it's clear that when you drop into the postal system, assuming that they're not Jews working in the post office and so on and so forth, there you're clear. You can drop it into a mailbox, Arab Shabbat, right before Shabbat, how they do it, what they do it. They're going to pick up the mail whether you drop the letter in there or not. They're going to move the mail whether your letter there is not. It's a contractor relationship. They don't have to work for you on Shabbat. How they choose to do it, that's their own. That's not a problem. Overnight delivery runs into a separate issue. By overnight delivery, you are hiring them for a very specific destination, for a specific type of delivery, for a specific time. So if you send something, overnight delivery, for it to be delivered on Shabbat, then you're clearly asking them to work on Shabbat, and your relationship is no longer maybe a contractor obligation, you are specifically hiring them for a specific route to get to a specific location. So you've lost that header. But what David points out is very good is that you have the secondary header, which is that here, when you give it to the guy who picks it up at your house, he's not the one who's going to deliver it. He throws it into a central location, they sort it, they send it with someone else, and it moves through multiple people. So you do have the secondary dispensation here, which is that if it's passed through multiple people, maybe there is room for dispensation. And that's the lalocha, which is that generally we discourage you doing that, sending it directly on overnight on Shabbat. If there's some sort of desperate need or it's an emergency of some sort, then there is room within this heter of Amir la'akum that ends up to be akum la'akum, that there is room for dispensation to have an overnight delivery come on Shabbat that maybe be okay. That's true with general mail. I think that's true. But with, because the postman is going to deliver to the houses anyway. When you deal with a package, an overnight delivery, up to a certain point, that's true. But when they drive it out of there, the truck has to drive up to the location where you want, and they're only going there because of you. They want to make that delivery. They're not going to stop at that house anyway. They're not walking down that block anyway. They're only going there because you hired them to go there. Here it's your skiryom. You're paying them specifically to go to your destination. You hired somebody, skiryom. You're hiring them to do your work on Shabbat. It's a miracle. You're specifically hiring him to do your bidding on Shabbat. Again, the heter that David talks about, which is the Gemara, seems to indicate is that you're double removed. So maybe, maybe there's room over there to do it. All right. But Moshe has a tshuva there that, number one, if you know there are no Jews in the post office, then for sure you can send it. He says you don't have to go and check to see if there are Jews in the post office. He says that you don't, we don't obligate you to go figure that out. You can all roll of assume that it's not. He says, but if you do know there are Jews working in that local post office, then you have to start to worry. That's, I think Ramosha deals with it. He says, you're not under obligation to figure it out, but if you have the knowledge, then you, he says, then you might have to desist. And he says, you might have to be more careful. 
Okay, Tarabanan. Next din of this, Ain Mafigim Bisfina Pachot Migimo Yamim Kodam Shabbat. One may not go on a boat to leave on a trip, an ocean trip, three days, unless it's three days before Shabbat. But may the Mamurim, when is that true? The Dvar Rishut. That's for, it's optional, it's for your own benefit. About Dvar Mitzvah Shapir Dami. It's for a mitzvah, then it's okay. Then the Tanakam says, a post to Kimo Amanat Bishbot Venu Shoveit Divay Rabbi. When you start out, you tell them, listen, I want to stop on Shabbat. I don't want you sailing on Shabbat. I want you to stop for me on Shabbat. That's how you agree up front. But if on the trip and he says, listen, I can't stop on Shabbat. This is crazy. I'm not stopping. And he says, I'm breaking, I'm breaking the agreement. Then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Once you're on the boat, there's no issue anymore. Shemuel says, you don't have to. We're less than a day's trip apart. That you're allowed to go out even on Erev Shabbat. Number of reasons. First of all, you're close to the Yavasha. You're on the coastline the entire time. And the duration of the trip will be sufficient that you'll be there before Shabbat. So it won't be an issue. Rashi notes that Erev Shabbat, Yom Shuk. That was the marketplace day was on Erev Shabbat. And so it was necessary for them to go. And they wanted to ensure to go and be able to come back before Shabbat. But that's fine. So what is the issue of getting on the boat before Shabbat? The problem here is that, Balamor says that the problem here is that you might be forced to do malach on Shabbat. Because you might end up in a dangerous situation where you'll be forced to do malach on Shabbat. And because of that, we don't want you getting on the boat. Why? So what does three days do for you? Three days does the same thing we saw with Pesach before. Three days before Pesach is within the purview of Pesach. By Shabbat, the same thing. Starting on Wednesday is already considered to be the entrance to the next Shabbat. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday are considered to be part of the previous Shabbat. How do we know that? You can make Abdullah until Tuesday. So we know that it belongs to the previous day. The Wednesday, Thursday, Friday belong to the upcoming Shabbat. So once you're within the purview of Shabbat, we don't allow you to enter on the ship because you might come into Malacha. If you entered before that, then you entered Behater. And if it happens, you'd be in Bisakana, then you have to do Malacha and Shabbat. That's fine. That's the Balamor. The Rif worries about the fact that you might get seasick. If you get seasick, it's going to ruin your own Shabbat. And in ruining your own Shabbat, we don't, again, allow you to do this when you're within the purview of Shabbat. If you start out beforehand, beheter, and hopefully you'll acclimate, and you won't be seasick by the time Shabbat comes, or even if you are seasick, you entered before you were within the purview of Shabbat, and that's fine. Tosafot over here gives a third reason why. He says it's gzer mishum shat, problem from swimming. The same gzer that asks swimming on Shabbat, same gzer applies here, that if you go out on the water, you might end up in a position where you're going to build a raft, you're going to do something on the water that's inappropriate, and it's gzer because of shat. The Rabbeinu Hananel says the issue is problem because of Tchum. That you're going to be outside of Tchum, you're going to move outside of the areas of Tchum on Shabbat. So again, if you leave prior to the being under the purview of Shabbat, it's okay. If you leave after that point, when you're within the purview of Shabbat, we don't want you to do that. The last opinion I saw is that in the Rambam, the Rambam says the issue is that the crew of the boat might do malacha for you. It's not a problem of you doing malacha. But they are going to be doing malacha for you. So that is a overview of the different opinions as to what the issue is here. Alright, next one. You may not lay siege to a non-Jewish city less than three days before Shabbat. If you already start to lay siege, we don't stop. You know, like I think about that. Lay siege. Every Saturday we're off from the siege. You guys can come out and go in and out. And obviously you don't stop. It says, you do it until you get rid of it, until you wipe out the city. You're allowed to be there, even on Shabbat. That's the Bavli. Yushalmi has an interesting term over here. Yushalmi has a qualification that says, Hani mile le Rishut. That's when the Milchama is an optional Milchama. 
במלחמת מצווה, אפילו בשבת. במלחמת מצווה, you can even lay siege on Shabbat. והראיה, they bring a proof from Yericho. On Yericho, they laid siege. I'm not exactly sure what exactly the Yushalmi is thinking about. The Sukim and Yoshua tell us that they were there for seven days, and that on the seventh day, which was supposedly was Shabbat, they took down the walls. I mean, the walls went down, so they laid siege. But if they laid siege for seven days, that means they started on Sunday. And then they took down the walls, the walls came down on Shabbat. Seems to me the Yushalmi is referring to that part, that the walls came down on Shabbat, because they walked around the walls each day, and then finally on the seventh day they took it down. That's Yushalmi's Rayo, that you can do it even on Shabbat, which the Babli here doesn't entertain that qualification, Yushalmi does have that qualification. Alright, Amar Rabbi Shemim Gamliel, Noagim Ayu, this is based on his family's minhag, machmir like Beit Shemai, that they didn't give laundry over to the Kuveis, unless they had three days before Shabbat, when it would deal with white laundry. They used to give over any of their white clothing to the launderer at least three days prior to Shabbat, Color clothing they gave even on every Shabbat because that was sufficient time in order to launder the clothing. It's pretty straightforward that it's harder to launder white clothing than it is to launder colored clothing. Baya gave over his colored clothing to a koves, to a launderer. How much do you want for this? What's the cost of this? Like a white beggar. I'm already wise to you, guys. That can't be the case. You can't ask me for the same money for my color clothing as you do for my white clothing. Because I know from the Rabbanan, I know from the Gamliel, that white clothing is much harder to launder. So how are you asking me a price for white clothing when I'm giving you colored clothing? So I'm Rabbi, when you give over clothing to the dry cleaners, you should make sure before Mishcha natively, make sure you measure it before you give it to him. And then measure it when you get back. He says, if it's bigger than it was when you gave it to him, they did this, they used to tie the bigadim up, and then they used to pound them, so he stretched out your baguette. If it's smaller when you get it back to measure the amount, then he shrank it for you. So he said, you should make sure to check with these kovsim, because they can end up ruining the baguette and costing you more than they're worth. I mean, they're laundering the baguette and end up costing you the whole value of the baguette by either stretching it out or by shrinking it. This is the end of the Mishnah. The end of the Mishnah says that Beit Shemai and Beit Hillel agree that when it comes to putting the beams on the olives and putting the circle weights on the grapes, that you can do that going into Shabbat. says, What's the difference? Everything else in the Mishnah, Beit Shemai says, no go. Why do they not go there over there? So it says, This is what we mentioned already back by the Mishnah. And the other items, if you did them on Shabbat itself, you be Therefore they were gozer on Erev Shabbat with Shabbat. Even if you did it on Shabbat itself, you They were not gozer in that instance. So it's all going to happen by itself. It's not a chiyuv chatat. And therefore, the pressure, whatever is being done, starts out before Shabbat. We're not going to worry about it going into Shabbat because we're only dealing with the Dindar Rabbanan. As we mentioned before, in the Mishnah, because he already ground the olives or he already stomped the grapes. So we already dealt with the Tolda of Borer Dash that you separated the liquids from the solids. That's done already. Now you're just dealing with the residual and that's only a Dindar Rabbanan. Matana Dami. 
Who's a Tana that says that anything that happens by itself is okay? Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Hanina, Rabbi Shmoli. Rabbi Shmoli is the author of that position. That's not. Ashum, Vaboser, Vamililot. Garlic, Boser, unripened grapes. Mililot are unripened wheat kernels. Shiriskan, Bibaodjom. That he cuts them up and he grinds them or crushes them before Shabbat. Rabbi Shmoli Omer, Yigmor Mishetech Shach. Rabbi Shmoli says he can let it go and let them drip out even into the nighttime, into Shabbat. Kiva says, Lo, Yigmor, can't let it finish. It has to be done before Shabbat. Otherwise, you can't put it on beforehand. You can't put the weights on beforehand. Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Elazar, he. So Rabbi Elazar says it's Rabbi Elazar. Now these are two different Rabbi Elazar. So Rabbi Elazar, the Amora, is saying that it is Rabbi Elazar, the Tana. So Rabbi Elazar, the Amora, is Rabbi Elazar ben Pedat. And Rabbi Elazar, the Tana, Stam Rabbi Elazar in Shaz, is Rabbi Elazar ben Shamua. So here we're talking about Rabbi Lozer ben Petat the Amora saying that it's Rabbi Lozer the Tano, the Tzran. Chalot Tvashiriskan Be'er Shabbat. If you have honeycombs that you cut up, crush, before Shabbat, Yitzum Yatzman, and then the honey drips out by itself, Asur. Rabbi Lozer Matir, Rabbi Lozer says it's fine. So in both these cases you see that Rabbi Lozer says that it's Mutar. Once you started it, did they process the work before Shabbat, and whatever drips out afterwards is Mutar, that is Rabbi Lozer's opinion here by the honey. That's Rabbi Shmuel's opinion before what we saw by the Boser, Mililot, and Shum. So now the Gemara wants to understand why each of the Amoraim didn't pick the other's Tano. So Why did Rabbi Yossi not say like Rabbi Lazar? When you deal with honeycombs, it was food beforehand, it's food afterwards. But by the grapes, by the Mililot, and by the Garlic, you're squeezing a liquid out of a salad. It's first nochel, and then mashke mashke. So you're squeezing out a liquid out of a salad, and by doing that, you are problematic on Shabbat. That's a real dash. So over there, I see Rabbi Shmuel saying it's mutar. That's why I think Rabbi Shmuel's the opinion that we want to follow. Here you have Rabbi Lazar talking about from a salad to salad. That's not equivalent to the case of Beit Shemai, where we're talking about olives and grapes. Rabbi Lazar, Rabbi Lazar, Rabbi Rabbi Lazar the Amora says, according to the Tan of Rabbi Lazar, we also know that he has this opinion by olives and grapes as well. That he was matir over there. When he came from Narada, he brought a brighter with him. Again, he crushed them, cut them up before Shabbat. And then they come out by themselves on Shabbat. Asurim, that you can't do. Rabbi Lazar, Rabbi Shimon, matirim. So you see Rabbi Lazar is matir, even when it's an ochel with the liquid inside of it. Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Chanina, Brayta Lushmiele, he didn't know about that Brayta, which is okay. Meaning that we expect from Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Chanina to know the Mishnayot. And within the Mishnah, the only opinion of Rabbi Lazar that we see is about Dvash. There it's ochel miochel. And that's why Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Chanina did not mention Rabbi Lazar as the author of this opinion. Even though there's a Brayta that supports Rabbi Lazar's opinion, the Amora, that it is Rabbi Lazar the Tano, but because he didn't know the brighter, that's why he didn't say it. So we understand why he didn't say it, because he didn't know the brighter. But Rabbi Lazar, the Amor, who didn't know the brighter, that's why he chose Rabbi Lazar. But on the other hand, Rabbi Lazar, my time alone, Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Chanina. Why does it, Rabbi Lazar subscribe to Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Chanina's opinion that it's Rabbi Shmuel? Didn't we already learn about this? We qualified that position. When we're talking about a case where they're missing dicha, crushing, Nobody argues there. It's problematic. 
That's when they are missing, pounding down. And these are cases where it's only mechusar dicha. As Rashi, when it's mechusarim dicha, because when you put the weights on them, when it's missing that point, that means that you haven't even started the process. That means that you're, you're like back at stage one almost. You're so far back that when you put it on there, you're doing more than simply pressing the juice that's left over. You're really almost starting the process from the beginning. Over there, that everybody agrees is a sort. Even Rabbi Ishmael. When do they argue? They argue when they've already been crushed, but they haven't been pounded down. When they're crushed, they're not been pounded, you're at the final stage. The last stage is just to get out the residual liquid there. That is where they argue, and that Rabbi Shmuel agrees to. But our case here, when you're talking about Beit Beit Hillel, we're still in the early stages there. They've only been pressed a little bit, they've been stomped on, and they've been put through the mill, but they still have, they haven't been crushed to the point where there's nothing left in them just to squeeze out the remaining juice. There's still solids left in there. And therefore, you're at the place of Meducha, and even there, Rabbi Shmuel agrees that it's a sewer. So, Hora Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Hanina, Ki Rabbi Shmuel. Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Hanina, Paskind, like Rabbi Shmuel. Right, but they had, for whatever reason, they had a Misora, what they quoted before from Rabbi Shmuel, they had a qualification. Now, it's not just the word Risuk, because Risuk is used in each of these cases. By Tavash, it's used, it's also used by Zetim Navim, it's used throughout. Can't be that that's the word that they were. It's a qualification that they had of that, right? Right now, Shemen Shel Bidadim. So here we have Rashi, what the Shemen Shel Bidadim is. The word Bidadim is from the Bad, from the olive press. Rashi claims it's the oil that's caught in the corners of the olive press. Umechatzalot Shel Bidadim. Or the covers, the mats that they used to put on top of the olives in the press. I assume that when they press them, they put them on top to keep them in place or to, so they didn't squeeze out or didn't come out. So both of those, Ravasar, Ushmol Shari. Rav says that's a sur. Shmuel says mutar. Rav says it's a sur mukso. Shmuel says it's mutar no mukso. That's because Rav subscribes to the position of Rabbi Yehuda that there is a din of mukso. Shmuel subscribes to the position of Rabbi Shimon that there is no din of mukso. So that's it. The issue here is mukso. Tell us about Rav Rashi. What do you mean? How do we jump to mukso all of a sudden? Why are we dealing with mukso? We had nothing to do with mukso. So Tosafot explains that this is a din of mukso. But what's this oil here? Teretz read the kaila el the kamar dimtan beit abadmi ba'on yom. You put these beam on the olive press when it's still daytime. And the oil goes out through Shabbat. Rav says you can't use that oil on Shabbat because it's mokso. Because it's nolad. It came to being on Shabbat. Whereas Shmuel says there's no din of mokso and therefore it is mutar. So then Tosfot asks a very basic question. Didn't we say on yesterday's daf that if you put a raw piece of meat into your pot right before Shabbat, that's fine. But wait, that's not edible going into Shabbat. So how come that's not a problem with Muksu coming into Shabbat? So Toswa differentiates between them and he says that when it comes to the meat, the meat is there. It exists. It's not nolad. It's going to cook over Shabbat and the melah. It's going to happen by itself, but the meat is in existence. He says that's not true by the liquids. The liquids that are captured inside of the olives and the grapes, they don't exist until you press them out of the grapes. It's not viewing it as if the liquids are there and they're just releasing the liquids. But rather, the liquids are being created by the pressure that's being placed on these items. So Tosfot differentiates between the two and says, one is no lot a problem of muks on Shabbat, whereas the raw piece of meat is not a problem of muks on Shabbat because it exists. The actual meat is there going into the Shabbat. And that's the difference between these two sugyot, why you have no lot or not. So obviously we can't be talking about money because then everybody agrees with problematic. So Rashi explains over here, zuzay means a pair like zug, and krache means the covers. These are pairs of covers that used to put cover over the merchandise on the boats. They're used to cover over the boats 
What the problem is, is not clear here. Rav Asar, because of Muksa, Shmuel Shari. What is the problem of Muksa over here? Could argue, because it has to do with prakmatia, it has to do with transacting, merchandise, selling. So that's the problem. Tosafot brings from the Rebbeinu Tam that it's a problem of Muksa, Mahmoud, Mius. That they become dirty and disgusting from the merchandise that they sit on top of. Because of that, they are not usable. They're Muksa on Shabbat, because nobody would ever use them or utilize them on Shabbat. So now... Otherwise, you would have to say that it's Muksa Mahmoud Isur because it's involved in merchandising and selling and buying. So because of that, again, Rav is Osir because he thinks there's Muksa on Shabbat. Shmuel is Matir because he thinks there is no Muksa on Shabbat. So I'm Rav Nachman. Aiz the Chava. Now we're moving on to Yom Tov. If you have a goat for milk, Rachel the Gizata, you have a ewe for its shearings, Tarna Gola the Beitzata, a chicken for its eggs, Vitore the Ridya, an ox for plowing, Vitamre the Iska. And you have dates that you've designated to use for buying and selling, they're going to be used in your commercial business. Rav Asar, Rav says it's problematic to use on Yom Tov. Ushmuel Amar Mutar. Again, Shmuel says it's Mutar. And as we mentioned all the way along here, they're arguing the same Machlok of the Rabbi Yudah Rabbi Shimon. Yudah thinks that there is an Easter Muksa on Shabbat. Rabbi Shimon thinks there is no Easter Muksa on Shabbat. The same, by, the same by Yom Tov as well. So therefore, if you want to shecht one of these animals on Yom Tov, if they are designated for something that is not meat coming into Yom Tov, then you can't change your mind to Yom Tov and all of a sudden you use them because it's muksa. Because when it came into Benesh Mashot, they were designated for something other than eating. So according to Rabbi Shimon, it doesn't hold a muksa, no problem. According to Rabbi Yudah, thinks there is muksa, there is a problem. In all these cases, the same thing. Rab is aligning with Rabbi Yudah, saying that there is a problem of muksa. Shmuel is aligning with Rabbi Shimon, that there is no problem of muksa. How tell me that the Ori Bicharata, the Argis, Ke Rabbi Shimon... So there was this Talmud that paskind in Charata the Argis. As Rashi points out here, it's very interesting Rashi. Rashi says, Charata is the name of the place. Dargiz is the name of the man who built it. He says here, it's a sorcerer who built the city. And he says, Rabhamnuna Darba. Rabnuna lived in it. Vadain Marat Kurato Kayemet Sham. And his burial cave is still there. Kachmatzati Bishuva, Rashi says. So Ramnuna lived in the city and he has some Masora that his burial cave is still in this location. So he says that he passed him like Rabbi Shimon. Shamte Rabamnuna. Rabamnuna is a Talmud of Rav. Put him into Shamta. Vahak Rabbi Shimon Sviralan. Don't we pass him like Rabbi Shimon? So what's the problem over here? He was passing him like Shmuel, who holds like Rabbi Shimon. What's the issue? Batarei the So that was under a place that was under Rav's purview, under Rav's jurisdiction. So Loi Baila, the Mevet Hochi, you can't pass against Rav when you're in his jurisdiction. It's true, we might pass against Allah like Shmuel. But in his jurisdiction, you don't do that. So Hani Trey Domidei, Chad Matzio, Bechad Mano, Bechad Matzio, Be'arba, Bechamesh Mane. Two Domidim. When there's a fire in the house on Shabbat, we're going to get to this later on in the Mesechta in Perakitli Kodesh. you're allowed to save certain things from the fire. How you save it, how much Tircha we allow you, all that is spoken about over there. So here you had two Domidim, one saved Everything he found in a single basket. So for instance, you're only allowed to take out three meals for Shabbat. But in the basket, you have tons of food that's more than three meals. Do you have to throw the extra out or can you take it out? If you take it out in one basket, you can take out even more than three meals in the one basket. Another individual brought out four or five baskets, but he combined them into a single basket and carried it out. So again, is that the same tircha on Shabbat? Is that allowed? So that's a machloket later on in Parakit Kodesh. He says, They're arguing this machloket amuraim that's found in Perakit Kodesh, whether you're allowed to make a single tircha with one basket or a single tircha even with multiple baskets as long as you're only carrying it at once. Question of how much tircha we allow you to do to save from the fire to be in excess of what you're allowed to take out. Again, it's not really relevant to our Gemara, but a similar type of 
structure. So the Gemara brought it over here. You have two Talmidim doing something, and then they match up with another Machloket that we've seen in the Gemara. Okay, we'll stop over here. We'll continue with the Mishnah tomorrow.